This morning we'll be in Mark chapter 11. We're finishing up the sermon that we began last week. We're looking at verses 12 through 19. So this is part two of the sermon I titled Fruitless and Unfaithful. You can turn to page 847 in those blue Bibles. That'll bring you to Mark chapter 11. Let me do this. Let me open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we, we are thankful. Father, help us now to come before your word in a way that would honor you. Father, just to put aside all the other random thoughts that flood into our minds during this time we have. And Father, to focus completely and fully on your word. And Father, that our hearts would be receptive to these things. Help us not to grow tired or bored, but Father, to engage. For we are not reading from just another book. But we are diving into and exploring your very words brought to us throughout the ages through much sacrifice and by your mighty hand that we might have them to read today, to learn from and to grow from all for your glory. Do your work, Father, among us even now. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, you ever played word association? There's, you know, if I say dog, you say <clears throat> cat? Okay. If I say spoon, you say amazing. That's what I had written down. So there's some, they, there's some cycle battle behind all this, but if I say unfaithful, you say my wife said dead. <clears throat> uh, actually, maybe you say adultery. <clears throat> when you think of unfaithful, maybe that's the first thing you think about. That is one of the definitions of unfaithfulness. But in marriage, unfaithfulness often starts in a much smaller and less noticeable way before it actually explodes into that vicious and vile and sinful act that we describe as adultery. In fact, I would say, and you would probably agree with me, that the appearance of faithfulness does not necessarily indicate a faithful heart, fully committed and loyal to that other person. Well, that is the case before us today in the text that we are going to read. There is an outward appearance of faithfulness. But inwardly, there is a vicious and vile disloyalty. So let's look at the text and we will review last week's point in case you weren't here. And then eventually we will get around to the second point. All of this is contained within your bulletins in the outline that's located on the inside left page. So, follow along with me, Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, that is Jesus and his disciples, that is Monday, he was hungry. 
And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. That's the end of our text this morning. So we're going to examine the second object. We said last week that we would look at two objects. We looked at the fig tree, the deceptive tree last week. This week, we're going to look at the defiled temple, the defiled temple. And we're looking at these objects and have looked at these objects so that we might understand the reason behind or for Jesus' actions. Why did he do what he did? Beyond that, what are the implications, not only for the nation of Israel, But can we draw any implications from the text for us? So by way of review, a deceptive tree. Remember, if you were here, and if not, this will be the first time you've heard this, we examine Jesus' behavior towards this fig tree, which seemed rather odd, just by a cursory reading. We discovered that the cursing of the fig tree was not driven by anger or vindictive fury, as some have suggested. In other words, that Jesus came up to the tree being hungry, looking for some fruit, thinking there would be fruit on it because it was in leaf, full of leaves. And so according to the way the tree acts, it should have had some fruit on it. Finding none upon closer examination, he becomes outraged and uses his supernatural powers not to bring fruit to the tree, but to curse it. And later, as we read through the text, we find out that this tree has withered. So it was not vindictive fury. It was not that Jesus was hungry and just threw a tantrum. That's not the case. The key to understanding Jesus' actions towards this fig tree is to understand, I believe, that the fig tree symbolized the nation of Israel. And we talked about this last week. Like the deceptive fig tree in leaf, indicating that it should have had fruit, though it had none, The nation of Israel was, in a sense, deceptive because they looked like a people who truly worshipped God and followed Him. But their hearts, beloved, were far, far from Him. And as a result, their lives lacked the very righteous fruit that true worshippers of God should produce. Now, Jesus' cursing of the tree was symbolic then of the judgment that was going to come upon the nation for their hypocrisy and their insincere worship. And most importantly, for their full and final rejection of Jesus Christ as their King and their Messiah that would occur only days later after this event. Just reminding you of what one writer said, From last week, Jesus' strong denunciation of the tree, which Peter later regarded as a curse, you see that in chapter 11, verse 21, 
was a dramatic, prophetic sign of God's impending judgment on Israel. The promising but unproductive fig tree symbolized Israel's spiritual barrenness despite divine favor and the impressive, and it was impressive, outward appearance of their religion. And we talked about that in detail last week. This encounter with the tree, beloved, took place, as I've said already, on Monday morning, on the way to Jerusalem. Upon entering Jerusalem on Sunday, during the triumphal entry, he inspected the temple area and left there that evening. He is now on his way back to deal with the serious evils that were occurring within the beautiful walls of this glorious, appearing anyways, temple. The connection, by the way, with the tree and the temple should be taken into consideration and is why I've put them together within the message. One writer says this, and you might remember this from last week, just as the leaves of the tree concealed the fact that there was no fruit to enjoy on that fig tree, so the magnificence of the temple and its ceremony concealed the fact that Israel had not brought forth the fruit of righteousness demanded by their God. What appeared, beloved, on the outside as a great amount of religious activity, especially at this time of the year in the celebration of Passover, what appeared as activity that was dedicated to the worship and honor of God was actually to some degree corrupted or defiled by what was taking place on the very inside of that temple. Now, I thought it would be helpful at this point to give you a little background information on the temple. Maybe you know this already, maybe you don't. So, and I have pictures, and that's always helpful, right? Okay, good, great. <laughs> Listen, the temple, I want you to understand that the temple is not an insignificant building within the life of Israel or in the eyes of God. I will say that again in the message at some point, but I'm saying it to you right now. This is why I'm pointing this out to you. Do not think of the temple as just another religious building where the Jews happen to gather together to do their thing. No, there it is much more to the temple than that. It was a building, it was sacred, it was a dedicated place. It was even referred to as the house of God. Ezra chapter 3 verse 8, the house of God. And it was also called the temple of the Lord. Ezra chapter 3 verse 10. It was where the nation of Israel was to gather together to worship their God and to offer the necessary and prescribed sacrifices, meaning that God gave them instructions specifically how to do this and what to use, in order to make atonement for their sins. Now, not only did the Jews use the temple, but in the first century there was actually a place within the temple walls called the outer court. And it is where the Gentiles, who are not Jews, basically the Bible sees two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles is everyone else, all the other nations. The Gentiles who actually feared God could come in and participate in the worship of the God of Israel because they had put away all their other gods and had recognized 
this God as the one and only true God. Now, let me show you a pick to kind of help you out with uh, some things here, and I'll try this laser pointer in a second. This is a, a drawing, obviously, of what we believe the temple looked like at the time that Jesus entered it. And I think this might help you just to understand the massiveness of this temple. You can see this area right here is the Gentile courtyard. This is actually the temple, temple holy, holy of holies right here. These are other courtyards. This is where uh, the women would gather, Jewish women. This is where the Jewish men would gather. This is where the priests would perform the sacrifices. This, inside of this building, is where they would enter once a year to make special sacrifices, calling the Day of Atonement. Out here is this big area called the Gentile Courtyard where the Gentiles could gather. Jews would walk through here, but they would gain further access. We're not going to go into all the reasons for that right now. I just want you to see some distinctions here. But just so you understand how massive this place is, you see this little box down here? This is uh, the size of the temple, the whole courtyard. Here's the inner temple. So this is this. Right next to it is a football field. So I wanted you to see, so you football fans understand how large this place is. A football field is 300, and not the playing area, but the entire thing is 360 feet by 160 feet. So just to give you an idea, you could probably fit 15 of them into the courtyard area. The entire place occupied approximately 30 acres. 30 acres. So it's massive. It's massive. I also wanted to make sure that you understood this Gentile courtyard, so that you'll be able to understand when Jesus enters and we get further into the text, you understand where he is and what's going on. So this is the temple. It was a glorious building. You can pull up the next. This is an incomplete picture for some reason. I'm not sure why. So it's not going to work. But it's actually a model. They've made a model of Jerusalem in the temple, but you, for whatever reason, can't see it right now. So let's flip to the next one. And this is, this is the idea that you would be standing here, the inner temple would be right here, just to kind of get an idea of what maybe that inner courtyard would look like. Right here, these things popping out of the ground are stairwells where they could enter the courtyard and exit the courtyard. And then eventually they would make their way uh, to the, the center where the sacrificial activity took place. So, those are your pictures. We'll come back to one of them in a second. One uh, Bible dictionary says the worshipers could gather for prayer and sacrifice in the temple courtyards, which we just pointed out, where they could sing psalms, so they would sing praises to God, and they would do this as they saw the offerings that they had brought and purchased presented to God by the priest on the great altar. So this was, it was a worship service in a sense. It was very festival, but it was also very serious as they watched their offerings being presented to God for their sins. You cannot go to the temple without being reminded of the fact that you are a sinner and you are in need of God's forgiveness. Now, let me give you some temple history. And again, all of this stuff is not so you can walk out of here and be educated about the temple, but that you'll be educated about the temple and know how significant it is in the Bible and in the nation of Israel and even is still significant in future history. The first temple in Jerusalem was built by David's son Solomon. During the reign, or his reign as king in Israel, 
in the 10th century B.C. Okay, 10th century B.C. This refers to before the age of Christ. For that reason, it was also referred to as Solomon's temple. So sometimes when you're, when you're reading things about the temple, they'll either refer to it as the first temple or Solomon's temple because Solomon was responsible for erecting it. That temple was destroyed by the invading and conquering Babylonians in 587 B.C. So approximately 400 years later, the temple was wiped out. Why? This happened because God was judging the nation of Israel. You know what for? Their unfaithfulness. Just keep that in the back of your mind. For their unfaithfulness. And this was displayed in their rebellion against God and in their idolatry. And when we talk about idolatry with the nation of Israel, what we're talking about is the fact that they worshipped other gods. They were committing, in a sense, spiritual adultery. Now, the second temple, or sometimes referred to as Zerubbabel's temple, it began construction in 587 B.C. when a number... That's incorrect. I got that wrong. When a number of Jews returned to the Babylonian captivity, from the Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem, and with Zerubbabel's help, they started work on rebuilding the temple. Now, it was finally completed in 515 B.C. 515 B.C. And it was completed, some of these dates I've gotten wrong, so just note that, on the same site as the first temple, but it did not come close to the former beauty and magnificence of Solomon's temple. So just here, if we can just back up a little bit, Solomon built a temple. It was destroyed when the Babylonians came in. They were taken captive, many of them, to Babylon. Eventually they were released. They went back to their land. They began to build the temple. They got discouraged. They finally completed the temple in 515. The temple was built on the very site where the first temple was destroyed. And it's referred to as the second temple or Zerubbabel's temple. Same thing. Now, I want to show you, just from God's Word, take you back to this point where the temple is being completed, the second temple, or Zerubbabel's temple, in Haggai chapter 2. You can look up at the screen, or you can turn your Bibles to the left. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. And here, through the prophet Haggai, God speaks to the people. And listen to what He says. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory. He's referring to the temple. He's now referring to the glory that the temple held when it was Solomon's temple. So who's still here that remembers what the other one looked like? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You have to remember that when Solomon built that temple, he had all of the resources in the world available to him. And it was a magnificent building. Now they're coming back and building from their ruins. And so what they built paled in comparison to what they had. And they're sad. They are very sad. Verse 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now I read that to you just so that you could get some history about the temple and that you would see that God is directly connected to this temple. He is concerned about it. And he's concerned even about the way his people feel about the current temple. It's significant. Now these promises God made certainly would have encouraged these people just coming back, trying to rebuild what they had before. But beloved, the glory of the Lord will fill the temple again. Some of these promises that were made in Haggai have yet to be fulfilled. The glory of the Lord, God Himself filling that temple, happened in Solomon's temple. And you can see that in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. It filled the temple. But at this time in history, right now, today, the temple of God does not exist. It does not exist as it will in the millennial kingdom during Christ's prophesied and coming rule and reign as the king on earth. And you might want to just jot this text down, Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 through 5, that speaks to that time when the temple will be in existence and the Lord again will come and fill the very building with His presence, with His glory. That has yet to happen since God has departed that temple as judgment upon the nation of Israel and then left it to its destruction by her enemies. Now, the second temple, beloved, Zerubbabel's temple, that poor, pathetic, but place of worship for the nation of Israel, did eventually get significant upgrades. Because you might be wondering, how did it get to the picture that we saw? How did it become that? And it's the same temple. It's the same location as the first temple. Herod, beginning in 20 B.C., began to remodel the second temple. So sometimes it's referred to as Herod's temple. So you have Solomon's temple, the first temple. You have Zerubbabel's temple, which is the second temple. And it's also then referred to as Herod's temple in the stage or existence that it was when he began to rebuild it and remodel it. And as Christ... uh, experienced it in the first century. This temple, Herod's temple, is the temple that Jesus entered and disrupted in our text in Mark. Now, as symbolized, and we talked about this last week, in part, in the withering of the, or the cursing of the fig tree and the ultimate withering of it, this predicted, or this was a sign of what Jesus predicted in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, as part of God's judgment on the nation for the rebellion and rejection of Christ. Just as the first temple was destroyed for Israel's rebellion and idolatry, so would the second temple be destroyed just as 
Christ predicted it would. And that happened in history in 70 A.D. And I talked about this last week. By the Roman army, they leveled it and they butchered and murdered a multitude of Jews in the process. Now, the temple, remember, occupied a significant part of Israel's life and worship. This is not the same as a church burning today. You have to understand that. Although terrible, although the people are crushed, a building that where the church meets is not, is not the house of God in the way that it was with the temple. You have to understand the distinction. Wherever we are, we are the church. But for the nation of Israel, God actually met with them there in this holy and sacred place. And it was there that the sacrificial system took part. They took part of the sacrificial system that made atonement for their sins. Very significant. It is worth noting that the temple has never been rebuilt since it was destroyed in AD 70. And the place where that temple, Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, and Herod's temple stood, do you know what stands there now? The Dome of the Rock. So let me, I want to show you a picture of that. I mentioned this last week. This is an aerial picture now. This building is a holy shrine for the Muslims, for Islam. And on that land is where the temple once stood. And without going to all the details about the wars that have taken place over the centuries, that is why right now this place is occupied by Muslims. By the way, just so you know, a lot of the fighting and a lot of the stuff and a lot of the politics that go on have much to do with this holy piece of property. Now, the temple will be rebuilt. If we understand prophecy correctly, the temple will be rebuilt. But that thing will have to come down before that happens. So just consider that. When you see all the stuff in the news and all of this bickering back and forth and our politicians say, we can, we can develop peace between them. It's way deeper. Way deeper than what they present it to be. It is not just a little piece of land here or there. This is rooted back thousands of years and goes all the way back to the God of Israel and what they feel about this land and believe it to be and what it should be. They are hoping, many religious Jews are hoping, one day the temple will be rebuilt, but right now that's an impossibility without all-out war if they were to even try such a thing. Beyond that, it might be fun for you. And I love this stuff because it just reminds me again and again the Bible is true. It is right on the money. If you want to know what's going on, if you want to understand our world rightly, it's right here. It's right here. Look up, just for fun, you can Wikipedia it, look up Wailing Wall, West Wall. Wailing Wall, West Wall. Maybe you don't know what that is. Maybe you've seen it on the news. It's that large wall that the Jews stand in front of and they do this kind of thing. They're said to be wailing or crying or praying and politicians visit there and they put prayers written on paper in the cracks of the wall. You know what the wall is? The wall is what we believe the wall is the remnants 
of the foundations of the temple area that went around the temple. It's the only thing left. The Muslims think it's theirs. Israel thinks it's theirs. And they cry out at that wailing wall because of what's happened to their temple. And they are waiting for it to be rebuilt. Pretty amazing stuff, guys. So I want you to understand the temple is not insignificant. It is not insignificant. Now, the problem we encounter here in Mark, though, is that me telling you the temple is not insignificant, it is sacred, it is special, it is holy, the people who should have understood that the most were using the temple in a way that dishonored it, defiled it, and even their God. It dishonored their God. And it revealed just how far the people of God's hearts had moved from Him. How corrupted their worship had become. How artificial their worship of God was. And that brings us to a defiled temple. And that's actually the second point. A defiled temple. Defiled simply means, if you would, corrupted or tainted or polluted. Okay? Polluted. We understand what polluted is. Our waters get polluted. The beach gets polluted. And there's a sign that goes up and we're not supposed to go in the water because we'll get sick. It might be a good way to think of it. The temple is sick. It's sick. So turn back or look at Mark chapter 11. Let's look at this together again. Mark 11:15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Back to that first picture. This is Herod's temple, okay? So Jesus has entered the Gentile courtyards. That's where he is. It is called the court of the Gentiles, as I said, because it's the only place within the temple area that the Gentiles might enter. Guess what? Inside of this huge, gigantic area, merchants have set up business. They've set up shop. It has become, in a sense, a swap meet. And they have done this in order to provide ritually pure, approved items that the worshippers needed for their temple sacrifices. They would be items like wine or oil or even animals. Now, beyond that, there would have been a need for the worshipers who were coming. And remember, this is Passover. People are coming from all over for the special worship that's going to take place. As they come in, they would also have to pay a tax, a temple tax. It was required Under Exodus 30, verses 12 through 16. You can look that up if you do such things. And in order to pay the temple tax, the temple would not accept Greek or Roman money. Uh, One of the reasons is because the pictures on the money, being of Caesar or such, so they considered it idolatry, you had to use a particular coinage. So here I am, I come, I have Greek or Roman money, I'm going to have to exchange my Greek or Roman money for the exact currency that I need to pay the temple tax tax. There's nothing wrong with paying the temple tax. It allowed it to stay in business, to, that's probably a bad word, but to stay functional. Okay, but at this point, maybe stay in business would be a better way to describe it. Now this is, we understand this to some degree. This is like going to Disneyland and trading your money, like if they forced you to trade your money for Disney bucks and they said, listen, 
the only way that you can buy anything within here is if you have Disney dollars. And that would be all well and good unless they charge me an outrageous rate to make the exchange. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, so let's just move through this now so you kind of understand the picture. We have businesses that are set up regarding items that needed or are provided in order for the sacrifice. We have people that are exchanging currency so that they might have the proper currency to pay the appropriate tax. So there's several problems with the situation as it existed in the first century. First, the area that the Gentiles used to worship was now also being used to conduct business. And that would have been a major distraction to their worship as they're supposed to be singing psalms and praying and seeing their offerings brought up by the priest and and watching it be burned up and the smoke going up to heaven and just thinking about these things. Meanwhile, they've got animals running all over the place and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but business going on and all the hustle and bustle of that. How do you worship in that environment? But you know what? Apparently this was no concern for the temple authorities. Remember that the Jews were allowed to enter further into this center area. There was no business being conducted in that area. It was outside in the Gentile courtyard. So there is a certain disdain that Israel has for other people, specifically Gentiles. That's kind of the image that we get here. Otherwise, they wouldn't have allowed such things. Second, the business that was being conducted was not being done in an honorable way. How do we know that? Mark 11:17. look back at the text. So Jesus basically starts throwing tables and kicking people out. And then it says in verse 17, He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. A den of robbers? The temple? Now that's interesting because both of these statements, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, one, and the second, You have made it a den of robbers, both come from the Old Testament. This was Jesus' M.O., he liked to quote the Old Testament. He knew his scriptures and he brought them up on a regular basis. He quoted Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be a house of prayer for all people. And he quoted Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And I think we do not have time, so I will not read it, but I would encourage you to go back to Jeremiah chapter 7 and read verses 1 through 11. And see what was going on at that time in the nation of Israel. I'll just quickly tell you. Jeremiah came to the nation for God telling them, you are going to be judged for your rebellion, for your idolatry. And as it describes the situation, they would come to the temple and and they were living in defiance against God and in sin against Him. And they would come to the temple and say, everything's fine, everything's good. All the while stealing and robbing and committing idolatry. And that's why God says this has become a den of robbers. Not a holy place where you worship God and come to grips with the fact that you have sinned against me. And there is a high cost for that sin as you watch innocent animals being offered up in sacrifice for your sin. So these words are serious. Serious. Now, The den of robbers certainly communicates that something illegitimate about the transactions was taking place. 
In other words, beloved, the people were being ripped off through these transactions and greed. Hey, do we know anything about greed? We know a little. Greed was alive and well in the house of God. That's a hard sentence to even say. It was alive and well. You know, it reminds me almost of paying five to six bucks for a pocket, bucket of popcorn. Now, you, I've brought up popcorn a million times. You know I have a love affair with popcorn. But it, it irritates me like nobody's business to go to a movie theater and see the price. You know it's a rip-off, right? You know it's a rip-off, but you do it anyway because it's convenient. And you can't bring in your own popcorn, theoretically. It would be wrong if you did that. I just want you to know that. That's The temple merchants, beloved, they had these people right where they wanted them. And apparently they were taking advantage of the situation. Listen, in regard to the money exchange, a small surcharge was allowed. Okay? They're in business. So if you don't bring the appropriate coinage, then to exchange your Roman or Greek money for the appropriate coinage, yeah, there's a small transaction. And it was allowed. It was understandable. But they were charging exorbitant fees, almost holding the people hostage. What are they going to do? They're in the temple. They're ready to go at it. And here you go. You've got a corner on the market, basically. It it reminds me of this whole situation. just reminds me of the the craziness even we see. It's not an exact comparison, but I don't know if you've seen that crazy commercial from Western Sky. It goes like this. Hey, if you need $2,500 in your checking account by tomorrow then Western Sky is the place to call. Yes, the money is expensive, but there is no collateral. You ever seen that? Yes, the money is expensive. Do you want to know how expensive the money is? They charge 139% interest. And if you borrow $2,500 from them and you pay it back, as they have laid out, you will pay $10,728. Yeah. And so I, I don't pretend to suggest that Western Sky was present in the temple area, but that spirit, that spirit of greed was alive. Third, the fact that the people were okay, beloved, with conducting business, either buying or selling within the temple area, shows the low level of respect that they had for what had been treated as holy and with great reverence in the past as God had required. They were in the house of God, literally. But they were treating it like an ordinary market square or flea market. In support of this idea that there was a general lack of respect for God and His temple. Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 11, verse 16. Jesus, it says, and Jesus, He, besides throwing everybody out, He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, it has been understood to mean that Jesus, temporarily at least, while He was there, put a stop to the practice of people using the temple as a shortcut between the city and the Mount of Olives, which is on the other side, to transport their items. 
All right? So it's like, hey, listen, why go all the way around? Just make your way through the temple courtyard and you'll cut ten minutes or whatever off your journey. This is the temple courtyard. This is not a shortcut. So the reverence this place deserved had really been diminished and Jesus was not about to tolerate it. And that's why He is having His way in this place. He was cleaning house. Now, setting aside the sanctity of the temple for just a moment, consider... If you were an entrepreneur, this practice of selling important and necessary items within the temple walls would have made really total sense, right? If we set aside the fact that this is a sacred place, hey, this is a good idea. During the Passover, worshipers would come, like I said, from all over the areas. And in order to bring an animal with them all that way would just be a huge burden. Beyond that, the priest had to approve the animal or whatever elements that they use. So think about this. You may bring your animal all the way, but then you get there and the priest says, nope, that's not going to pass. But guess what? Right over here in the temple courtyard, we have pre-approved... You get the idea? This was perfect conditions for absolute corruption within what was supposed to be holy reverence, Worship of God. Now, beloved, there were other certified markets in the city, but this setup within the temple walls was certainly more convenient and guaranteed that the animals would be approved. But it was dishonoring and disrespectful and unfaithful to God to say the least. If it wasn't, then Jesus would have been cool with it and he wouldn't have done anything about it. But he was not okay with what was happening in his father's house. By the way, none of these merchants would have been there without the authorization of the high priest and his family. (laughs) So one writer says this, the operation of the sellers furthered the financial interest of the high priestly family. Sellers either belonged to the hierarchy or they paid a considerable fee to the temple authorities for the privilege. Can you start to see what's going on? So a commentator, thinking through those things, says, by overturning the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, Jesus was directly challenging the authority of the high priest because they were there by his authorization. Look back at the text, Mark chapter 11. Verse 18, now you start to understand why there was such frustration. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Listen, having their authority directly challenged and no doubt their financial interest attacked, That explains why the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, were not applauding Jesus' actions to restore the temple to a true place of worship. Doesn't this seem like a good thing? They were not applauding His actions to give the temple back its dignity and remove the corruption that had moved in. 
But rather they looked upon him with scorn and they were seeking a way to put him six feet under. So, the bottom line in all this is that Jesus' actions within that temple displayed in a very unique way his godly authority. I mean, who in their right mind would come in and start tossing people out of this place? Who? Who has the authority to do such things? But as we will see, as we read on in the text, that the religious leaders would challenge that very authority. And sadly, the people ultimately failed to recognize His authority. Luke 19.44, they did not recognize the day of their visitation. And so these bold actions by Jesus only moved Him closer to what He's already predicted would occur in Mark chapter 10, verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. He's there now. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. All right, beloved. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hand, but you can just give me a a nod. I can see you. How many of you think that Jesus was right to do, based on what we've looked at, He was right to do what He did in the temple? Right? Right. He was right. He was right. Scribes and Pharisees and chief priests, they were wrong. He was right. Let me ask you this. Are you happy? Is there a certain sense of happiness or even rightness that overcomes your spirit when you see corruption uncovered and dealt with in our world? Do you say, yeah? Right? Yeah, finally. So we see, we see injustice and, and corruption and defilement everywhere around us in corporations and in, and in government and even, even religious organizations. I mean, even without getting into the politics of all this, even this movement that is, I don't even know what to call it, but the Wall Street Occupy people coming down in front of Wall Street and and protesting and now moving into other countries where it's becoming violent and they're burning cars and such, just without trying to get into all of what it means, on, on one level at least they're saying, hey, we see what's going on and we're sick of, this is what they're saying, we're sick of the corruption. We're sick of the fact, at least this is what they're saying, we're sick of the fact that the banks and everyone else continue to pile more and more money into their pockets and we are struggling and suffering. Now, whether they're right or wrong, that's not what I'm... I'm just saying, they're upset. That's what they're saying, they're upset. And, and if that is what's going on, that is wrong. If we are being taken advantage of by those in powerful positions, right? And when that happens, you get frustrated and you get upset, right? All right. And after all that, is it easy to understand then why Jesus, as the perfect Son of God, could not tolerate for a moment defilement 
of God's house or temple and acted just as he did. Does that make total sense? Good. Now consider this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Paul says, and I'm not taking this out of context. You can go back and look at it if you'd like. The whole entire chapter. But for the sake of our time, he says this, For we, individual believers, are the temple of the living God. Think that through, beloved. Think that through. And in the context, he's talking about not being bound together with unbelievers. Not that we don't have, we don't go after unbelievers or we don't associate with them. Of course we do. But being bound together in, in significant partnerships such as marriage or business. He even says, what fellowship has light with darkness? Do you think idols belong in the temple of God? For we are the temple of the living God. Ah, we are the temple of the living God. And consider this morning when I read from Colossians 1.27, this is unbelievable. He says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Paul, what is this mystery? It is Christ in you. In you. The hope of glory. One more. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20. Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And the context here is sexual immorality. And Paul says, Flee! Run from sexual immorality! Do you not know? Your body houses the Spirit of God. Beloved, I'm with you in these things. Our culture worries so much about our physical condition, right? And look, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Me and Henry were just having a talk about he runs and, and stuff. I think it's awesome. Um, it's good to do those things. But here's the thing. We focus sometimes so much on our physical condition, right? Cleansing our physical bodies from various poisons and toxins that we find in our food system and in our environment. Man, do you know how many Christian programs there are during the week, selling you this or that to weed out all the poisons that you take in and, and get your body pure and so on and so forth. Listen, I'm not against all that stuff, but all I would say is what if we put the same amount of energy and focus into cleansing our temples from the spiritual poison and spiritual defilement, those things and attitudes that have no place in God's house. I'd be so dare to say you could neglect the physical and I wouldn't aspect of your body and focus on the spiritual defilement and you would be much better off than the man who stood with you in perfect physical condition if that was his only focus. You know what I'm saying? 
You know, I, I wouldn't like it. I don't know about you. You probably agree. I wouldn't like it if you, if you came over to my house after church and you dropped your waste or your trash in my home. You know, you just pull up your truck to the front door and you say, listen, Jeremy, we're trying to save some money on our trash bill. So I thought you being a servant of God could help us out in this way and I'm just going to unload my trash in your house. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And I certainly wouldn't tolerate, well, you would never get past my wife. I'm going to tell you that right now. But, so I would just let her handle you. But how do you think God feels when we allow filth and trash to accumulate in His house? Not this place, beloved. This is not His house. This is His house. If we would be faithful to God, if we would be, then we must continue to inspect and cleanse our temples of anything that defiles the place where Christ dwells. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would do something. Father, we are thankful for what you have already done and we don't want to set that aside for a second. We praise you and we honor you for the work of transformation that is taking place within the hearts of your people. As we look back and see, I'm not what I will be, but I am not what I once was. But Father... I pray that you would continue to drive home the necessity for us to cooperate with you and your word by seeking those things that defile you, that are filthy to you, that are disrespectful, that demonstrate really our unfaithfulness, our lack of loyalty as we allow garbage to enter into our spiritual soul, our hearts, our minds. Father, we allow it to pile up defilement. Forgetting all the while that within us dwells You. And that is so hard to even get a hold of. But Your Word says it so we believe it to be true. A mystery of all mysteries. Christ in us. Do you not know that Your temple, Your body, houses the very Spirit of God? Father, may we do business on a regular basis, continuing to ask You to reveal to us those areas within our lives that need to be dealt with. Father, that we need to turn from, repent of. We need to cast off. We need to run from. We need to flee. We need to abandon. We need to throw out. And Father, help us to grasp and And fill our house with the fruits of your righteousness through the power of your spirit that lives and dwells within us who are your children. Father, do a work in us. And and if you do this work, Father, then and only then will we bring you the proper honor and glory that you are due. And then and only then will we really be a witness unto the nations of what God can do with a life when He moves in and begins to root out everything that defiles His holy and sacred name. 
Do your work among us, Father, through your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.